Gather round and listen to tales of great adventure and brave heroes. Tales of daring individuals fighting monsters and claiming treasure. Tales of bards trying to get into the pants of savage beasts to avoid losing a fight. Tales of people drinking beer, eating pizza, and rolling dice. Tales of people losing their minds over the things that happen to people who only exist in their mind. This is Roland Bones, and I am Ryan Howard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. I am your host, your dungeon master, your best friend, if you know me in real life, Ryan Howard, and we've got a great episode today. Uh, today we are talking to Mr. Venger Satanis, the creator of Chult, the, uh, the crazy gonzo science fantasy setting that I reviewed a couple episodes ago. And, uh, you know, we talk about a few different things about, you know, what it takes to create a setting that you then put online for other people to buy and use. Uh, the, the definition of the word gonzo actually was a, a pretty long discussion that we had. Uh, some of the stuff from his background and, and stuff like that. And it's it was all around a, a really interesting and fun interview. Venger is one of those people whose uh, mind kind of works differently from from everyone else, so it was really interesting just to hear kind of his take on RPGs and, you know, what he finds fun in games and, you know, how he runs his games. Uh, one thing I do have to say up front, um, I'm not going to be doing much of a monologue here at the top because uh, this episode, due to some technical difficulties on my end where my Skype recorder... Uh, ended up reverting to older settings for whatever reason. I, I don't even know why. Uh, the audio quality is not what it usually is on the show, so I apologize for that. Uh, the audio quality in this this uh, opening monologue here is also not going to be what it, what it usually is because, again, just I had to, I had to make everything consistent. So, yeah, just warning you guys up front, it'll be fixed next week. Uh, a lot of times those problems, uh, I don't catch them until I'm editing. So when stuff like that happens, it you just kind of have to roll with it. I can't scrap a whole episode and, you know, ask Venger to come back on, take more time away from his family to record this again. So that's what we're dealing with this week. Um, again, I'm sorry. Uh, but you know, just kind of get this out of the way. Uh, hopefully you're able to, to push past it and really enjoy this interview that I did with Venger. It's a lot of fun. I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's just dive right in to Venger Satanis on Rolling Bones with Ryan Howard. I'll see you on the other side. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm Rollin' Bones welcome to Mr. Venger Satanis, the creator of Chult. Venger, welcome to Rollin' Bones. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. You are welcome. After uh, after you sent me that free copy of the, the Chult setting, I figured I, I should have you on the show to talk about it, especially after I did the review, because it really is something that's 
really interesting. I haven't covered anything quite like it on the show before, so I figured it was best to, to talk to the, the mind behind it, as it were. Yeah, if you want to find out about it, that's really the best way. Go to the source. Absolutely. So we are going to kick this off the same way that we kick off every episode of Rolling Bones. I'm going to ask you these same questions that everyone gets asked. So first and foremost, how did you get into RPGs and D&D? Um, my aunt got me and my cousin um, some D&D books as a present. Um, I don't know if it was Christmas or my birthday or, or something like that, uh, but we both got this stuff probably from a local hobby store. She just picked up like random things. I happened to get the Tom Moldvoy Magenta Box uh, basic D&D set, which um, which I still think is one of the best versions of D&D. And when I, st- I started, I was really young. I was probably like 9, 10, something like that. My cousin was only a year and a half older than me. So when we, I read it and he read it or re- really skimmed over it, we didn't really know how to play or anything. We just kind of like talked about like, oh, maybe this is what it would be or and then we form a party and we go up to the mountain and we kill the dragon. Yay. We didn't know what went into it. So it was very weird and awkward. And we're like, I guess we've just played. And then it was months later when I actually met someone who had played D&D and they showed me the ropes that I learned what it was all about. And then I just kept playing. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that was, uh, which edition was this again? Uh, that was basic, um, like basic expert uh, D&D. So back in like, 1993. I mean, 1983. Did I say 93? I meant 83. 1983. And so of all the time that you've played RPGs, um, what has been your favorite game or game system? Uh, of all role-playing games? I don't know. Each one captures, like, uh, something really cool. I love D&D um, for, for it being its own thing. I also love Call of Cthulhu and had a great time playing that for many years. Um Oh, so many, so many games. I don't know. Um, there were some years where Vampire the Masquerade was my jam. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm just going to go so say D&D, I guess, is my favorite because it's the biggest and I played it the most. And um, it's easy for me to write for that kind of thing and create material for that. Whereas some games uh, or some genres... Even if I love them, like horror, it's difficult to consistently come up with something that you're proud of, you know, for someone else to take and run. Um, and there are things that I might want to play once in a while, like superheroes or the Old West, where it's really difficult for me to write for that. But, you know, I, I enjoy that stuff on a limited basis uh, as a player. If you're going to play a Western game, which one is your go-to? Well... No matter the genre, um, I gravitate towards rules light kind of games. I did have some experience with Deadlands. Um, I guess that fits me pretty well because it's a combination of the Old West and Call of Cthulhu, sort of with magic thrown in. Um, so probably Deadlands or I've never tried the Savage Worlds games, but I've heard that's pretty cool. Uh, so I would give that a try. Yeah, I've got a, I have a lot of love for Deadlands. I've, I've had Shane Hensley on the show before. I actually got to play in a convention game that he was GMing one time. Uh, I, I love that system. So thinking back to those those first times playing uh, Dungeons & Dragons, do you remember your first character? I remember the first character that 
didn't get killed right away. Yes. Um, he was, I, I don't know what, what dungeon or, or adventure, uh, I was a player in, but it was like three or four characters, um, that died kind of in a row. Um, there was like a rust monster and some other guys. I don't know if they were orcs or uh, goblins or something like that, but they kept, I think it was just me and the dungeon master. Maybe I had a character or two. I might have been playing one guy, which, which explains why I died so easily and so often. But then one, one character, this fighter, his name was Root, and uh, he survived um, inexplicably. And then he kept on surviving. He made it to th- at least third level um, after a few sessions. And um, so he's the one I remember and the one I uh, am fond of you know, remembering, I guess. <laughs> Those of you listening, brand new edition, because I found among myself and other GMs, that I've talked to and whose content I consume, everyone seems to have that forever NPC that always shows up in their game. So, Venger, do you have one of those? Sometimes if I'm feeling wily, um, I'll put myself in the game as an NPC, uh, partly just because it's funny, uh, partly because I know that character inside and out because he's me, uh, partly just to screw with people. Like, if you know, I'd make it pretty obvious after... A little while if they recognize that it's basically me then they're like oh should we like interact with him maybe different than we should otherwise or should we just straight out kill him or yeah so every once in a while i'll put myself in the game depending on the type of game it's you know not if it's something serious but if it's lighthearted or gonzo um you know wacky like a comedy game um, i'll do that I've put myself in the game one time. Uh, there was a character who wanted to forage for mushrooms in my game, and he had a very low wisdom. So I was like, all right, roll survival, and he rolls. He rolled super low. And so I said, all right, roll me a d12. And he did. And I basically had it so that one through three, he found uh, poisonous mushrooms. He'd take some kind of damage. Uh, the middle three, he would find actual edible mushrooms and be fine. And then uh, the last three, he would find magic mushrooms and he'd trip. Mm-hmm. He rolled a 12. So he starts tripping and he transcends his reality and he sees everyone at the table. That's cool. And then he almost started taking levels in cleric to become a cleric of Ryan. But <laughs> Then he decided against that. Did the players enjoy that? Yes. Yeah, it was a fun little fun little moment there. So um, we all kind of have our own unique styles that we kind of bring to the table when we play, both as players and dungeon masters. So my question to you, Venger, is describe your play style as a GM and then as a player as well. I, uh, I was just uh, doing like a Twitter poll the other day, and then I blogged about it on my um, old school gaming blog. Uh, authentic versus epic. And it's really hard to do both, especially in the same session. So um, mostly these days, I go for authentic. And that by that, I mean, you're not going to you know, necessarily slay the dragon or jump on its back and you know, ride it through the seven kingdoms and then you know, duel your arch nemesis uh, and then you know, save the kingdom. Um, maybe you're going to start off, um, you know, like mopping the tavern, um, or, you know, wiping down the bar, 
or helping the blacksmith. And then slowly but surely, um, great, amazing, cool things, um, are possible, but not, you know, not jumping out in your face. Um, like the original star Wars where everybody kind of had to like start from nothing and earn their way to the middle and then the top versus, um, the new star Wars sequels where, uh, the new trilogy where everybody just kind of like 10 seconds after they start from nothing or humble beginnings, they're like right in the center of things, um, on their way to greatness uh, and doing larger than life, like crazy stuff right out of the gate. Um, I prefer more of a authentic organic kind of approach. Um, yeah, that's as a, a game master, as a player, I like to role play and I like social interaction and, and exploration just as much as I like combat. I like to, uh, be my character, um, while I'm playing. So if I'm playing like a fighter, then, you know, I'm going to want to fight, <laughs> intimidate, push people around. If I'm a wizard, then, um, I'd want to be all arcane and, and maybe wacky stuff like that. If, you know, I'm, could be a thief or a rogue or something like that. I'll probably be more like secretive and um, not wanting to get killed right away, like hiding in shadows and, and whatnot. So, you know, I just kind of go with the flow, I guess. But at the same time, I like to be an active player and put myself out there and give my fellow players and the game master uh, what they need to sort of push the story forward I hate it when things get bogged down uh, in minutiae or squabbling or just endless discussion of like, oh, should we do this or, you know, should we go, should we use a ladder? Should we use a rope to get up to the third story? And, you know, 20 minutes later, people are still talking about like, oh, how should we do it? Should we use like some sort of magic? It's like, oh, my God, like just, you know, get on with it. So I think that's answered the, answered the question. So for, for people like us who make content surrounding RPGs and, and love this hobby so much, the gaming table is a place where many great memories are made. Venger, can you think of your fondest RPG memory? Well, there's so many. Uh, but the first one that came to mind when you said that, uh, it was a Roll20 session probably a couple of years ago, I think. Um, shortly after I debuted uh, my sleazy sci-fi role-playing game alpha blue and uh, i tried it out with players that i knew well face to face uh, this is one of the first times that i ran it with someone i had no history with it was just some random guy that showed up um we didn't have uh cameras or anything uh when i do a roll 20 thing it's text only because i usually do it at work and I'm in an office that's open to the public and other employees and things like that. Uh, I do it on my, my lunch hour. And um, like I said, it's not only sci-fi, but purposely uh, sleazy. You know, it can get anywhere from ice pirates or like police academy stuff to further into NC-17 territory. And uh, this guy was um, – this guy's character – he was just like a, a human spacer with, you know, a blaster and an attitude. And uh, he was talking to this princess, um, this alien humanoid princess. And I won't go into the full details, but some erotic 
uh, you know, sexual things happened and it was, it was different. Um, it was not like any role playing game session I've had before. Um, although I've had a few since and, um, it just showed the differences and how cool alpha blue is if you like that kind of thing. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, that's probably one of my fondest memories um, uh, recently, I guess. Unfortunately, we have to go from the, the highest highs to the lowest lows of RPGs because we share the table with all sorts of people when we play games. Some of these people become our best friends. Some of these people we don't really get along with, and the worst of these people we have reserved the term of that guy for. So, Venger, what is your best or worst that guy story? To my knowledge, there's only been one time where mid-session I just got up and walked out. And that was probably the second or third session in the campaign. this campaign that this guy was running at his house. Um, this was a while ago. So this was like uh, 11, 12 years ago. And the first couple sessions hadn't been anything to write home about. Um, fairly boring. Um, I mean, he put some, some time and effort into the world and different NPCs, which in the beginning was kind of cool, but then I could see where he was the kind of game master that made it all about him. And we, the players were just kind of seemed like window dressing uh, at some points. Um, we just weren't the center of the action. We weren't the heroes, um, or even anti-heroes. We were just kind of like there to experience the the wondrousness of his world and his characters. And so this session in particular, we, it was I think it was Eberron. So we were on this like magic electric train, and um, there was a combat, and I was waiting to like attack someone as they came through the door, and then some stuff happened. Like he rolled, and and then. Uh, I don't even know exactly, but I think the door opened into me and I got knocked out right away. And this was after like, like 20 minutes of combat happened. And then I finally got a chance to act because I was in like the car next to the, all the action. And then it finally came to me and I got knocked out. And then another like five minutes passed. And this guy was kind of playing, uh, you know, by the book. And I could tell that, by the way the combat was going and from what he said to me when I asked him a couple of questions like, Oh, am I, you know, is this a temporary thing? Or he's like, Oh, you're knocked out for a while. I was like, this combat is probably going to go on for another 40, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And I'm going to be unconscious probably most, if not all that time. And who knows how much more of the session I'll, basically miss even after the combat's over, you know? Uh, and I was just like, I've got like a TV show to watch and, uh, I don't need this. So I just basically was like, you know what? It's been fun, but, uh, I got something I got to do. And I just stood up and was like, see you guys. And I just left and I did not come back. And, um, you know, I don't feel bad about it at all because, uh, gaming is supposed to be fun and a leisure activity. You know, it's a hobby. And that just sucked and drained all the... Um, uh, yeah, that's it. That, basically, I was done. Um, when we play RPGs, there's a lot of stuff that we just kind of accept 
just it's comes with the territory and some of that stuff we grow to love some of it we feel like we could maybe do without so what is your least favorite rpg cliche uh generally speaking i love cliches because they're very easy to grasp conceptually and i think they're ripe for turning into something unusual or awesome because all you have to do is take something that's commonplace and twist it a little bit, you know, put your own creative spin on it, and it, uh, it becomes something fun and awesome and, and new. Um, the one I like the least would be, hmm, that's a good question. I don't know, maybe falling back on saving the princess, like the whole damsel in distress. But I don't know, that's that's also, you know, it's popular and cliched for a reason. Um, you know what? I, I don't know. I can't. I can't think of a good one. Fair enough. I mean, like, in my opinion, a lot of times cliches get annoying because people don't move past them. A lot of cliches in, in role-playing games and in fiction are a good starting point. And they work out fine when you, by the end of it, get to something new and creative and fun and inventive. But a lot of times people just don't go there. They, they take the easy route and they just kind of lean on those those cliches and that's so so I really see kind of your, your point there that sometimes cliches are fine as long as it leads to something cool by the end of it as long as it develops into something yeah if it started a cliche and just kept going uh, that would be pretty tedious after a while um, but yeah gotcha well we are at the last of these introductory questions here um, this is one that a lot of people struggle with. And I will tell you that it can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. So, Venger, if you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Oh, let's see. It could be anything, right? It doesn't have to be, wow, absolutely anything. Absolutely anything. Okay, I'm just going to kind of start talking and, and see where the creative muse takes me. I would want myself in there. So, me as, like as my avatar mostly describes, um, uh, green skin, recognizably me, like humanoid, with tentacles, probably casting, you know what, I would probably want to be um, that sorceress. And like I would sort of replace the sorceress um, in the uh, the Tom Moldvoy um, uh, box cover for the, the basic D&D like we talked about. So I'd be lobbing a, uh, like a fireball at um this cool dragon and then maybe i have a couple you know uh other player characters like aside uh like near nearby helping me uh you know take this dragon out and then there'd be the treasure um but then maybe on the outskirts too there'd be like a whole bunch of other slimy tentacles and there'd be like this cthulhu mythos aspect to it maybe cthulhu himself would be like looking down from above or below, or something like that. So yeah, kind of a whole melange of early D&D and Lovecraft. And since I'm going to be the sorceress, basically, well, I'll be the sorcerer, you know. Um, so for the the female aspect, there'd probably be, going back to the cliche <laughs> that I said that I didn't care for, maybe there'd be some, some damsels in distress. Uh, maybe behind the dragon, there'd be some like, uh, attractive women like chained up and um, that, you know, our party would be trying to rescue. So you got a little visual TNA there as well. Cool. Well, 
now we're going to move into some questions that are more directed towards your work and the the stuff that that you are famous or infamous for. And so I want to start just by asking, we all as dungeon masters uh, from time to time come up with a setting that we like to run our games in. I've got one. Um, one of my friends has one. You know, we, we all have just the setting that we create and we develop over our games and we run most of our games in the setting. As a content creator who's released an official, you know, like, sold setting, at what point do you look at your setting and go, I think this is a product that other people would want to consume and run games in? Well, I know that my tastes are limited. It's not just me, thankfully. Uh, there are a few other people that also like the things that I like. Uh, but at the same time, I know that my tastes are a bit more exclusive than someone that just likes pseudo-medieval fantasy. Um, like medieval Europe, but with magic and dragons, like Game of Thrones or something like that. That's obviously could be way more popular than um, some weird gonzo sleazy you know you know comedy uh game with you know lasers and demons and tentacles and things like that um so knowing that i look at it if if it excites me enough where i want to play it or i want to run this setting run run people through this campaign setting then it's worth putting out there um because i'm probably not the my most harshest critic other people have critiqued me a lot harder than i can treat critique myself. Uh, I mean, some people downright hate the things I put out. Um, and I obviously love them for the most part, but, um, yeah, if it doesn't excite me, then I have no interest in pursuing it. So it's gotta be something that I would run myself or else why bother doing it? I, I don't do it for the money. Um, obviously, and I don't do it just to gain some sort of following or whatever. Um, I do it because I love the hobby and I want to share my stuff, the stuff that I love with other people of like mind. Um, yeah. And one thing I will say, even though, you know, pseudo medieval European style uh, classic high fantasy is more popular, it's also more prevalent. So releasing something as out there and crazy as Chult might actually draw more attention because just from my experience, there's less like it out there. Yeah, if you're in a crowded field, uh, you've got a lot of competition um, if you're doing something that is like what everybody else is doing. So I, if I can, I'd like to try to be unique or at least in a, in a less crowded field than uh, something that's super popular. So where did the idea for Chult come from? Tell me a little bit about the, the origin of, of what is now known as Chult. Um, well, this is obviously not my first campaign setting, um, since I've been dungeon mastering, I don't know, 35 years, something like that. Uh, I've gone through quite a few and there are certain things that I really like. Um, I like the combination of fa uh, fantasy and science fiction. I like, um, like a post-apocalyptic kind of world or vibe where you can see the remnants of, a once great civilization, um, kind of in the background of the setting. Um, you know, uh, I had a lot of fun with, with, um, dark sun back in the early nineties. And so that's been an inspiration, um, along with all the, the fantasy and science fiction movies that I loved as a youth 
like uh, Star Wars and Dune, um, Beastmaster. So a lot of sword and sorcery things as well as, you know, science fantasy and science fiction. And I just like uh, weird out there gonzo type things that push the limits of good taste and realism. Because even if I like an authentic role-playing experience, which I do, I also love stuff that is so batshit insane that it makes you question, like, how can that possibly be real? Or where would that ever come from? You know, it's so richly bizarre that you'd think that it, it takes you out of the game. Uh, it breaks immersion, which is a big no-no. But I find that once people are properly plugged into the game and their characters and the setting, that th- those kind of things, those kind of really weird, intensely bizarre, gonzo elements can really enhance the game and increase immersion, uh, make you feel like, yeah, you're really there. Um, maybe because it's part of the unknown and it's um, non-standard D&D. Um, whereas everybody is tired of the usual things like, you know, there's a dungeon, there's a bunch of orcs, there's a chest of gold, uh, maybe there's a, an evil wizard. Um, all those things are fun. But at the same time, um, if you've done enough of them over the years, you know, part of you, part of your mind is saying like, yeah, this is fun, but I've seen it so often. Um, it's become a little boring. And I think boring boredom is more harmful for immersion than something unique or something wacky or, or really outside the box. Yeah. That's one thing I'm actually noticing in, uh the game that I'm running right now on Wednesdays, which is actually a 5th edition uh, conversion of sorts of Dark Sun. My players, um, I think one of them, one or two of them had played Dark Sun back when it first came out, but they hadn't played it since. And the rest of the table just hadn't played it at all. And so a lot of the stuff that, that happens in Dark Sun they're not used to in a D&D game. And so they're very much engaged in it, and I'm very much engaged in it as a dungeon master, just kind of essentially throwing out the, the D&D rulebook that I've become so accustomed to over the years of, of running 5th edition, which has been the, the primary system that I run. And so I, re- I really do feel like there's some, some merit in running a game where the, the normal rules that you become so accustomed to both content-wise and then even, like, mechanics-wise, no longer apply. Yeah, and that's one of the things I liked about Dark Sun uh, from the get-go. The little little tweaks with, uh, you know, hardly any metal around and uh, the magic with the preservers and the defilers um, starting at third level and some of the new races um, and just the, the focus on survival. You know, you're in a harsh desert climate and everything is trying to kill you. Um, there's something very familiar about that. Like, aside from Dark Sun, like, I feel like I've seen that quite a few times before, but yet I can't, like, pin my finger on, like, oh, yeah, it's from that movie or that TV show. But that kind of thing, I don't know. It's it's captured my imagination, um, that kind of world. And so that's definitely something I wanted to dive deeper into with Chalt. Um, but of course, I changed 
a lot of things and made it my own. And so really, you know, to someone looking for like, oh, I want something just like Dark Sun. It's not – Chalta's not just like Dark Sun. Um, there are some surface elements, and there's a couple of core aspects, but um, they are pretty different from each other. Now, there's there's a word that's used quite a lot in the, the Chalt material and a word that you've used uh, quite a bit in this interview, and that word is gonzo. Now, I know what that word means. Uh, I'm pretty sure everyone out there listening knows what that word means, but my question for you is what does that word mean to you, and how do you feel that your, uh, that your stuff kind of uh, embraces that, that feeling that you have, that that notion of, of uh, kind of a, a, a gonzo world or gonzo fiction or however you would uh, describe it. Okay. Uh, answering the second part first, if I'm at the point where I'm writing something like an encounter or a part of a scenario and I'm thinking to myself, is this too out there? Like, is this too weird or too meta or too, if I'm referencing something, or a few things, most likely, that are way off the beaten track and like not even in the ballpark of sta- like quote unquote standard D and D. Then, well, then I ask myself like, well, is this Gonzo or is this not Gonzo? And most of the time, I answer the in the affirmative, yeah, it is Gonzo, the thing I'm writing. And so I'm like, well, then I put it in if I like it. And but if I'm writing something that's not supposed to be Gonzo. Um, then I'll just write it down in a notebook and save it for another time because uh, I might use it in a different project. Um, so answering the first part, you know, there's a few different definitions. If it if it basically breaks uh, reality in some way, um, I think it can qualify as gonzo. If it's kind of silly or comedic, you know, that's part of it. Uh, obviously, the, the more weird and bizarre, that's a good, you know, uh, touchstone for what is Gonzo. Yeah, all that stuff. The You know, it came from Hunter S. Thompson, uh, Gonzo journalism. That's kind of the, uh, uh, the beginning, I think, of the word and how it's used now. So... Yeah, just batshit insane, I guess. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's largely where I got my context from it was, was as it related to Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, but I just, because it's it's such a big part of your description of Chalt, I just wanted to hear kind of what you, what your take on that was. Since it's one of those things that, I mean, I mean, like the saying says, it, it's like, it's like porn, you don't know how to define it, but you know it when you see it. Yeah, <laughs> that's good because yeah, because it is so wide-reaching, um, and there are many different forms. It, it's harder to pin down, but yeah, you, you definitely know it when you see it. And anybody that's looked at the things like Chalt um, would also describe them as Gonzo. So if that's what I'm billing it as, then I guess I'm doing it right. So when it comes to uh, specific elements of Chalt, without getting too much into spoilers, because this is definitely something that people who are interested in playing uh, should go in with zero spoilers about, when it comes to the Black Pyramid, what were those sessions of, of writing that content like? Was it just opening up those those notebooks that you mentioned earlier? Was it... I've had too much to drink. Let me start working on 
portions of this? Like, what was your process for that? How how do you come up with something as Gonzo, if we can use that word uh, one more time, as the Black Pyramid? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, the rest of Chult, I try to use a modicum of restraint. And for people that don't want their campaign setting um, or their adventures to be too Gonzo, um, the rest of Chult uh, is good for that because it, it pulls back a little bit. Um, it's got some weird stuff in it, but nothing too crazy. Uh, my thoughts on the Black Pyramid when I was writing it is basically all bets are off. I, I didn't want to restrain myself at all. I wanted to get as fevered and as crazy and I wanted to go all the way down the rabbit hole, just like no limits. Um, I would write it down. And if it seemed too crazy or too far fetched, um, then at the time, or like afterwards in the, the proofing process uh, or the revising process, I would scale back or I would take things out or something like that. But I can't remember thinking anything was too bizarre for me to exclude. So anything that I came up with that just seemed so <laughs> d- deliciously asinine, I was just like, yeah, that's going in. And I didn't, uh, I didn't pull any punches with the black pyramid. And then, um, but I didn't want it just to be like only a, a crazy ass fun house of like insanity and murder. Um, I also wanted some things to tie in with each other, um, like with factions and, you know, um, different people looking for different things that were also in the black pyramid. And so I want it to be somewhat cohesive. Um, and for, for people that are just glancing at it, they look at one room and it's, you know, maybe filled with like crazy, I don't know. <laughs> I'm so I don't know. It's all over the place that I'm, I'm blank. You know, one room is like, um, maybe more like lost. And then another room, it's more like the tomorrow people or something. It's like, it doesn't seem like there's any connection at all. But actually, when you read it or when you actually play it or play through it, um, you can see that there are connections there, uh, however tenuous. And that in a certain way, it does make sense um, in a twisted kind of way. Um, and I enjoy that a lot, too. And that's one of the design goals I had is that I not only wanted it to be unbelievably out there, but I wanted there to be some sort of, uh, I don't know, cohesive, these strands, like keeping it together and making sure that, um, that there was some sort of meaning behind it or some sort of weird logic, even dream logic. Um, yeah, I wanted, I wanted something to go on going on besides it just being like, uh, fun house mirrors of like crazy shit. Yeah. And, and for as weird as that, mega dungeon is there are those kind of strands of connectivity that connect not just the the rooms themselves together but the the rest of the the world as a whole and i i really do have to commend you not just for for that dungeon but there's one dungeon that i loved uh to the point where i'm going to totally wholesale steal that idea for one if not more of my campaigns in the future and that is the frozen worm dungeon just the the idea of you are inside this uh this giant monster 
and you can't kill it, because if you try to kill it, it's going to wake up and kill you. You just have to get in and get out before the thing wakes up. I love that. And uh, just tell me a little bit about how, how that process was for you, com- coming up with that idea. Well, the giant purple worm thing, um, I actually borrowed that from someone else. Uh, but his, uh, you could probably Google it to find the map. I think it was like a one-page dungeon, maybe, um, that this guy did. I don't, I don't know the name. It's, it's something that like was in the back of my mind. Uh, books I had seen it years ago. I always thought like, oh, that's a cool idea. Um, but his, I believe, the purple, the giant purple worm was like petrified, and so it's been long dead. And um, you basically just explore like all the the cool stuff inside. For my setting, um, this Crawdumek, the the gigantic uh, purple demon worm, um, it's part of the setting. It's part of the city because it's got these psionic powers and it mind controls virtually all of the humanoids in that city. And so if I wanted to use that, you know, it's not dead, it's alive. And then I'm thinking, well, if I want people to explore it, like unless they're going to go into the whale, like Pinocchio, um, how would that work? And, and then the polar vortex hit last winter. And, um, I don't know about, about you or anyone else listening where you were in the country or in a different country uh, besides America, but um, it's, it's like the coldest, uh, however long it lasted, the polar vortex. It was like the coldest week it had been in like, I don't know, 20, 30, 50 years. Um, it got so cold that there was ice forming on the walls inside my house. Um, instantly that's how we also knew that they'd skimped out on the, um, uh, insulation. <laughs> so in the spring they came back and, and put some more insulation in. But so I was thinking about this extreme, like super cold. And then I was thinking like, Oh, what if something like that hit Charles, you know, maybe once in a blue moon, um, or a purple moon, um, some weird event like that happened. And then I was thinking, oh, you know what? If that happened in Chalt, that huge demon worm thing that's just like lounging next to the city itself, uh, that thing would probably get, you know, frozen too. And I was thinking, oh, well, if it's frozen, then it would basically be incapacitated enough for the adventurers to explore it. I was like, oh, okay, that's a cool idea. And then they could like inside the worm, they could not be frozen themselves because there'd be some inner warmth inside the thing, uh, especially since the polar vortex comes and goes relatively quickly. It's like a three day event or something like that. So I kept played, played around with it and then it just kind of made sense, you know, after turning it over in my mind a few times. And, um, so it just went with that. And then, you know, I just put a whole bunch of weird craziness in there. And, um, cause yeah, that, I mean that whole idea that, that giant, hidden worm that essentially controls the entire city psionically and that that's a very it's a very cool idea especially kind of living in that dark sun headspace that i'm in right now and it's very uh it's very god emperor of dune in a way yeah yeah <laughs> yeah a lot of a lot of dune in there um i don't know i'm thinking there's probably some other influence or two um 
that impacted the idea for that, but I'm blanking on where that came from. Um, I'm sure somewhere in the back of my mind it's lurking. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, there, there's a lot of really cool art in Chult, um, but one of the things that you do in the book is that there's a couple images that are not uh, drawn or painted, but they're actually uh, models that are photographed. Uh, are these like people that you knew personally, or are these people that you uh, that you hired? How did how did that come about? Yeah, I remember uh, your review. I was like nodding along, like okay, yep, I I know what he's talking about. Um, so I ran out of money. I ran out of money at an astonishingly quick rate. Um, so what I did was I basically had a hope and a dream. Uh, for this book, and I went out uh, against the wishes of my wife, and I bought several pieces of the highest quality and most expensive arts that I could find or afford. And then I went back to Kickstarter. By this time, it was like my 16th Kickstarter, something like that. So I had a pretty good track record. Um, and... I had been, you know, toying with this idea for several months and I had, you know, the basic gist of it and I had a few details. I'd been play testing things out and I was ready to launch it. So I thought, well, at a very, at a, just at a bare minimum, just to let people know that I don't have too unreal, unrealistic expectations, I'll set the bare minimum for like $10,000. But really what I'm hoping for is 20, 30, I would like $50,000. To really do this project justice, I would need somewhere between mm, twenty-five dollars to $30,000 to do it the right way, the way I wanted to do it, you know, with all super high-quality artwork all the way through. So I get to the end of the Kickstarter, and I'm at like, I don't know, $10,700, thinking, fuck, what do I do now? Because I really wanted to, to have it printed professionally. And, um, that was a whole thing. You know, I went back and forth like, Oh, should I use these people from China? Whatever. I'm glad I didn't. I went with, uh, Friesen's, which is an American and Canadian printing company. Um, they did a phenomenal job. They've done a lot of high quality role playing game books, uh, for other companies and I love their work. So I wanted to go with them. They were a little pricier, but you know, you get what you pay for. Um, but yeah, I blew my art budget pretty much before the Kickstarter even began with, with that limited amount of money that I, that I created through the Kickstarter. So I was scrambling, you know, I was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to teach myself how to draw real good, you know, uh, in the, the year that it's going to take me to, to, or the six months rather to finish this project. And so I turned to, um, stock art, basically like Adobe stock, uh, I found a lot of these images that I thought were pretty cool. Yeah, it's like different models, and they're wearing different costumes, and they got either makeup on or, you know, something where it looks like they're pretending to be the characters that you know they're pretending to be. And I'm like, well, if I can if I can sift through, you know, hundreds of these images, and I can find some some really cool ones, you know, and I spend ten dollars a piece on that instead of spending seven, eight hundred, a thousand dollars per piece on artwork. Then I can at least 
finish the project and have it look nice and not people not have people like throw the book down in anger and be like, what the fuck did you just do? You know, um, not every image is a winner, but by and large, um, I'm happy with, uh, the quality of the artwork, even though it does, you know, from a certain angle look kind of mismatched because there's some really nice, you know, well-drawn fine art paintings. And then there's, um, you know, uh, some humans uh, pretending to be these evil wizards in a dark cave or something like that. Um, so yeah, that was just a creative, uh, just a speed bump yeah, in, the, that, in yeah. the, the process. You no, know, a crutch that I had to use because, you know, it was either that or I have seven pieces of art in a 200 page book. And that also just seemed ludicrous to me. So I, I guess I just picked the lesser of two evils and, um, that's the story behind that. Yeah, and that I, I'm glad that you were able to to come on here and and tell me that because, you know, a lot of the stuff that you picked, uh, the ones with with the models, I thought actually ended up working really well and and kind of fit the the setting. And you you did a great job finding those in in the stock art. There's there's only one image. <laughs> <laughs> that I straight up yep. did not like, and that was the one that was just the desert scape, yeah. because I turned the page, and I was just like, oh, this looks like my science textbooks from high school. Yeah, when I heard that in the review, I was like, you know what? He's absolutely right. Um, now that he said that, I can't unsee that uh, image in that way. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, <laughs> I was looking at all the images, and I'm like, you know what? That's a desert with like this sort of pinkish fuchsia magenta type sky. And I'm like, Oh, that could be Chalt. And then I kind of got that idea in my head and I'm like, wow, I could, I could, I could buy that and use that for $10. <laughs> like I'd be a fool not to. So I kind of talked myself into it, I guess, but seeing it there in the page, especially after your comment, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't really work as well as I thought it would, but yeah, you live and you learn. Well, yeah. And, and you were able to successfully put out a product, and I have to commend you for that because, I mean, there's a ton of people out there who haven't. There's a ton of people out there who got their projects funded and didn't put anything out. That's true. Or, That's true. Yeah. A lot of people took the money and run uh, or ran. Um, so, yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> but, no, all in all, um, if this is what you're looking for, uh, listeners out there, this this is a really great book. There's a lot of really cool and interesting stuff that that Venger put into this. Um, so, Venger, as as we're kind of wrapping up here, what is your just kind of overall pitch, both for Chalt the setting and then uh, to get into some of the new stuff that you're doing? This uh, this new uh, adventure, I believe that that you just recently had a Kickstarter for. Mm-hmm. Yep, the follow up to Chalt is Chalt. Fuchsia Malaise, and that's a combination going deeper into the setting. Um, it's going to have more quote-unquote dungeon areas to explore. Um, it's going to have a closer look at some of the places that were already mentioned and a lot of new places. Um, it's just going to be basically Chult, but more, and occasionally deeper. Because um, some of the places... Like Kradumek, 
or the Black Pyramid, um, you get a really good look um, or an extensive look at what those places are like. Uh, well, the Black Pyramid, you, you get to see everything. Uh, the full Monty. Uh, but some places I only hint at or I describe very briefly. And um, in this place, uh, this new book, will yeah it'll it's a deeper dive into some of those places and it describes a whole lot of new things um underneath the desert uh, there's a high-tech facility uh created uh, by these off-worlders and that's their base of operations on chalt um and they're they're doing like the zoth spice fracking um that was mentioned in the in the original chalt um but they're doing other things like they're, you know, the rumors of them planning uh, a genocide type assault on the people of the planet. And, um, you know, they're using their uh, this drug that they manufacture to zombify the citizenry, things like that. Um, gets all the people in Schultz uh, up in arms. And um, it's a one it's assumed you know, you don't have to do this, but um, it's a, it's one angle of many to get the players and the characters involved in the setting is, um, you know, to fight back against the off-worlders and what they're doing to Chalt and the people on the planet and, and things like that um, to take revenge, um, things like that. So that's one avenue. Um but, you know, it's also kind of like a toolbox, and you can do whatever you want with Chalt. You can mash it up and mix it with other settings or other dungeons or other uh, systems, anything you want. You can use it as is. Um, you can cherry pick, like, places. Like, like, maybe you really want to use the Black Pyramid and not much else. Or maybe you like the stuff in Chalt besides the Black Pyramid, and then you'll want to use this new book to kind of like expand that. So, well, for the rest of the the time here, I'm going to turn this over to you to plug any kind of upcoming project, social media, anything that you want to have people hear about. Uh, the the floor as it is is yours. Let's see. Uh, let's get this social media stuff out of the way. Um, so I'm Venger Satanus. Uh, that's the name I use mostly online and whenever I do gaming stuff, um, like my books and whatnot. Um, so I've got Avengers Old School Gaming Blog. Uh, that's pretty easy to find. Just Google that. And I've got a Twitter account under Avengers Satanus as well. I'm big on there. Uh, I post probably daily on Twitter, uh, getting into fights with various people and factions and also coming together with um, a lot of old school uh, people that I have similar, you know, things in common with. Um, you've also mentioned, you've already mentioned the, the Chult, uh, Fuchsia Malaise. Um, I'm working on that now and that was successfully kickstarted, kickstarted, um, last month. Uh, almost 13, about 13,000. Uh, so higher than Chult, which is nice. Um, I started early trying to find some very cool middle of the road, uh, pieces of art that aren't going to break my bank. Um, so instead of the, you know, $800,000 pieces, I'm finding some really good, you know, anywhere from 150 to $300 a piece. And it'll make my, 
my money go a lot further and get a lot more art. Um, probably be more traditional art and less um, stock art. Uh, but if I find some really great pieces, you know, I'll, I'll use that too. There's the, the free Crimson Dragon Slayer D20, which is my own old school fifth edition hack of D&D. Um, that's a free PDF. You can find that on Drive-Thru RPG. Um, and also, not too long ago, I just released Old School Renaissance, Like a Fucking Boss. And uh, that's also a free PDF. So um, if you just want to try things out or see what I've got going on, you can get in for the low price of $0.00. And download those and check those out. And if you like those, you know, maybe you'll want to get in on Chalt or the new one or a bunch of other things that I've written over the years, like Alpha Blue, the Islands of Purple Haunted Presence, How to Game Master Like a Fucking Boss. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Venger, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and it's great to just kind of go over uh, a lot of the stuff that, that – I discovered in, in reading this and, and to hear it uh, from the mind that created it. Cool. Well, I hope uh, it enlightened you and uh, a few other listeners out there, and um, you'll give Chult a try. Well, guys, next week we have our first return guest for Roland Bones. I am bringing on the uh, the man, the myth, the legend, the uh, GM behind Knights and Nerds podcast, Tim Mathias is coming back on, and we are going to talk about the steps that you need to take when you first decide that you are going to Game Master. I'm looking forward to that. Tim's a great friend, great friend of the show, great friend of mine, and we're going to have a great conversation about starting out Dungeon Mastering and a lot of the stuff that goes along with that. But until then, as always, tell your players, tell your Dungeon Masters, your friends in Discord, your mailman, your mom, your dad, your grandma, and your manager who just told you to stop listening to podcasts at work, that Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard is your place to go for RPG interviews, and I'll see you next time.